my pleasure to introduce Tom Johnson, who's going to be talking to us today about transit and technical communication. All right, thanks, John. So let me introduce myself a little bit because I, I feel like I'm the outsider here. I'm not. I'm not a teacher. Uh, I'm not from Missouri. I'm from. Well, I'm living in Utah right now. I'm working as a technical writer uh, for a nonprofit organization, actually the LDS Church. Uh, we have a big IT department there, and I've been in the field for five, six years. I did actually teach a little bit uh, after I came out of college um, at the American University in Cairo but it was just basic writing. It wasn't anything that exciting. But I'm gonna, I get to talk to you about um, trends in technical communication today. And I'm not sure why, but, but I, I do have a blog on, uh, it's at idratherbewriting.com, and my tagline is the latest trends in technical communication, which I kind of chose because I started to see that that was why people read blogs. They wanted, to, they wanted to keep up on what all the trends were. So even though that's not what I exclusively cover on my blog, it's kind of like one of those things that entices people into it. And I do get into a lot of the trends. And by the way, I, I like to record uh, presentations that I give just um, to distribute them as podcasts. So that's what this little thing is right here in case you're wondering. So um, I was reading in Wired Magazine a while ago. Uh, it, a study that Andrea Lunsford, who's a well-known composition scholar, rhetoric scholar, um, had put forth. She said that, I think we're in the midst of a literacy revolution, the likes of which we haven't seen since Greek civilization. And what she found was that all of this texting that students do, all of this online stuff, Facebook, Twitter, all these networking sites that people are engaged in requires a lot of writing. People are constantly writing. And some people really, they look at this and they see the, the little shorthand, see you later with the C and the, the U and so forth, and they think that it, it signals the downfall of literacy. But she did this study and found that actually the reverse seems to be happening, that people are actually improving their writing skills and not just basic kind of writing, but they're, they're sharp about matching the style and tone to fit different contexts and things like that. And this leads into an idea that uh, I've kind of seen more and more. Now, I don't know exactly how pervasive this idea is, but it's definitely growing. And it's the idea that anybody can write. Uh, for example, just, just this week we released this product uh, that we've been working on for a year and a half at my organization. Actually, we released it this morning. So I got all kinds of emails about these bugs that people are finding, which was not very fun. But as we were preparing to release it, the project manager just kind of sat down and he drafted out the, the announcement that he wanted to go out. And then he passed it over to me to review it and so forth. But clearly my role was just to make the language pretty and then send it out. And more and more I'm seeing this idea that you don't need to be designated as a writer to write content. Um, we actually had a, had a conference for community developers. We have the, all, all these community projects that we do. And uh, all these developers came, but there was a special track devoted to technical writing. And a colleague and I were, were sitting there thinking, who's going to come to the technical writing track? Well, all the people who couldn't develop. Of course, if you can't develop, if you can't create an interface, you can at least write. At least that was kind of an assumption. And it turned out to mostly be true, at least half or more people that, they weren't writers. Uh, they were just people who wanted to help out, and this was the way they could. But this idea that anybody can write, in my opinion, is what's driving and is responsible for a lot of the trends. And I'm going to talk about these four trends, hybrid roles, social media, collaborative authoring, and multimedia, mostly video. And, and how this idea that anybody can write is kind of plays into these. So uh, there's, a, there's a trends panel at the STC Summit every year where they, put in, they get together all the, be the best experts and so forth, the well-known people. They sit them down and, and everybody asks them, you know, what's, what are the trends going on? What should we be doing and so forth? They're the, they're the most fun kind of sessions at the STC uh, every year. So this one guy, Bogo Vadovic, he's in Berlin. He's 
a pro, uh, he's like a project manager. He owns his own company. He's also a technical communicator. He does a lot of different things, web development. But he says that you really have to start, you have to start doing something more. You can't just write. It can't be your core skill set. If you do what you're told and, and what you're expected to do, um, nowadays that's simply not enough. You, you always have to do something more than what you're basically supposed to be doing. And he's referring to this category of people who just really bank all their skills into writing and they don't go beyond that. Writing is the only thing they do. He says, you're in trouble. He even says, you are soon going to be fired. You're going to be outsourced. You're a commodity if that's your only skill. Talk to another person, Jack Molasani. He is, <clears throat> he runs an IT staffing company called ProSpring Staffing. So he's constantly recruiting people to fill positions. And he said somewhat the same thing that Bogo said. He said, basically, you have to be a hybrid. You can't just be a writer. Now you have to figure out uh, some way to, to hyphenate your name. To be successful, techcom people are going to have to become hyphenated. You can't just be a technical writer. You have to be a, a technical writer usability expert, or a technical writer accessibility expert, or a technical writer project manager. So I asked, I said, well, Jack, what are you? And he said that he's a conference organizer slash IT um, recruiter and some other things. He has a big conference he does as well. Um, so this idea of the hybrid is, is what stems out of this idea that anybody can write. Because if your only skill set is that you can write, then you have to start doing something more in order to be valuable to your company. Um, and so, so there's lots of hybrid possibilities in techcom. You, in fact, one of, the, one of the challenges that the Society for Technical Communication has is that they're so, the, the skill sets of its members are so broad that it's really tough to, to provide information and content that satisfies everybody. So it's, it's a natural fit that we have all of these other skill sets, everything from usability to quality assurance to information architecture. Um, I actually recently wrote a big series of posts on my site about playing roles in, in QA, in, in design, in support, in audiovisual. It's really something that expands your career in a way that uh, is, is more fulfilling. You know, if you just sit there writing all day, um, sure, you're playing with words and so forth, which may be what you want, but at some point, uh, as soon as you go beyond that role and, and start to become more of a a team player and, and pitch in with all these all of these other tasks. It's a lot more fun. It's more exciting. Uh, you probably can't see this, but um, this is a job posting from Lynda.com. Lynda L Y N D A dot com. Lynda.com is a um, like a video site that, that has tons of software video tutorials. And I was looking through their newsletter, and they had job openings, and I was curious. And I was looking at this one. They had a job opening for a technical writer. And I'm like, hmm, what, what would a technical writer do there? And as you get down through it, the part I highlighted, it becomes very clear that the person they're looking for is not just somebody who, who would write. In fact, they're looking for somebody who does web development, photography, programming frameworks, Dreamweaver, Final Cut Pro, After Effects, Illustrator. Now, Final Cut, Final Cut Pro and After Effects those aren't just simple little tools. Those are like the, the powerhouse tools that you use when you're doing serious like editing of videos. And I was thinking, this is a perfect example of a tech writer who is not just a tech writer. It's a hybrid. And this is what I think a lot of students should really focus on if they want to become marketable. <clears throat> this is my colleague. He, he goes by Doc Guy in the Flare forums. Um, so <laughs> that's why I put his name there. But, Paul, he, he took an, a class in college on XML and XSLT, which are, you know, this is technical stuff that not everybody is up to speed on. Uh, well, when he got out of college, he was applying for a job, and an employer was trying to move to XML. And he saw that, oh, this guy just out of college, he, he's got some experience in XML. And he totally got the job. Um, he beat out other people who, who had more experience than he did as, as technical writers. He got the job because he had this additional skill set with working with XML. And it, he turned out to be really uh, technically adept. He's done all kinds of things that uh, has blown me away uh, with XML, even at his current job. 
So if I were to turn back the clock, I, I got my degree in English and then I got a degree in creative writing. Uh, but if I were to go back in time, um, I, would, I would double major or at least get a minor uh, just to kind of expand my skill set. Something in web design or, or computer science or, or something technical, digital media if that was available. Uh, I think that's a good strategy that people should keep in mind. But also, there's, there's another sort of facet to this. Apart from technical skills, what is extremely valuable is having a secondary domain knowledge. If you, if you know a lot about the health industry, or if you know a lot about engineering, or if you know a lot about accounting, that is incredibly useful. Because, and uh, you know, there we go. I've got a friend um, in, in Seattle. She's working for an accounting software firm for a number of years, she decided actually to go back into, to go back to school and get an, a degree in accounting. She's actually becoming a CPA and so forth. Not because she's trying to get out of technical writing. She took that with the idea that it would help her become a better technical writer. One of the reasons for that is, is you know, technical writers are at such a disadvantage if, if they're not like immersed in the business scenarios and context and knowledge of their users. I used to work for a financial firm <clears throat> in Florida, and, and we'd get these applications that, that uh, you know, we had no idea really how they would be used. Short fund, or, or sh I can't even remember all the, the lingo, but uh, w we took these classes kind of to try to move toward a Series 7 license and so forth, but really it became clear that our manuals were really limiting because they just said things like, you know, if you want to get this report, you click this. If you want to uh, find this screen, you go here and you do this. But, but it really didn't address to the user how they were supposed to implement this whole program in their, their daily context, which is really what the information, really the information that people needed. They needed business specific context that addressed scenarios that only people who are in those scenarios would really know and understand. So having that, that domain knowledge, that is extremely helpful in addition to all these technical skills. By the way, feel free to raise your hand, ask questions anywhere along the way. Uh, I'll also address questions at the end. But um, one more section in this, one more slide in this section. There's a guy, Larry, Larry Coons, who did a study on non-traditional roles that people are filling. And he gathered all these stories of, of users who were no longer just filling the, the basic technical writing role. And this one is from a Wendy Cunningham. She says she was hired I was hired as a technical writer for a small software development group. They had a team of programmers and technical support staff, but no marketing department. They hired a consultant for any marketing materials they couldn't handle on their own. Being someone who quickly gets bored with the same old routine, I kept my eyes open for an opportunity to spread my wings. My chance came prior to an annual software industry conference. I designed an auto-running PowerPoint. The presentation was a hit after that. I became their primary source for marketing copy and was included in marketing strategy meetings. They found that my in-depth understanding of the software helped me write more convincingly than the consultant. So here's an example where somebody enters a job as a technical writer, but then moves into more, more roles um, as these opportunities arise. Okay, I actually was just in Atlanta the other week and uh, <clears throat> they, they have an interesting group that's forming there. Um, they have a regular STC group, but, but a lot of the STC groups, <clears throat> they're kind of dying a little bit. Uh, they, they, they're, becoming, they're becoming more anemic, not as many people are attending. Well, a brand new group is forming, focused on, on this emerging field of content strategy. And uh, a lot of people are really excited about this, but this is a way that technical writers are going outside of their basic core skill set and they're expanding what, they're, what they know. So content strategy, there's a great book by Krista Halverson on this, but it's basically looking at everything as content from the platform of software to the messages you're sending to the users to your personas, everything. Asking, you know, what is this message we're sending? Is this what we want? Is, how are we measuring success? It's quite broad, um, but, but it is one way that technical communicators are really just going outside of themselves. Okay, now I want to get into social media. Um, 
I said at the beginning that, that there's this idea that anybody can write. Well, kind of what follows is that since anybody can write, a lot of people are writing. Um, and, and this is where, where we dip into social media. I was at a, a conference a few years ago talking with this guy named Nazar Bina. He's, a, he's in Valencia. Uh, he is like, I don't know his, his exact role, but he, he's a well-known guy. He speaks a lot at, at TechCom conferences. And I had a light bulb sort of moment. He, he was talking about social media, but he used this metaphor uh, as of the technical communicator as the key holder on a pipeline of customer data. Uh, he says that as, as technical communicators um, are in tune with the social media channels with their customers, and they're getting this data, these emails, these, these tweets, these Facebook posts, these blog posts, podcasts about their products, they're taking in an enormous amount of customer information that is then channeling the technical communicator's role from just somebody who used to document things to somebody who now can drive requirements for a product because they know what the customer's pain points are. They know what the customer wants and needs. So this is also transforming the, the technical writer's role. And here's an example where the fact that people are writing and anybody can write, it's not threatening the technical writer's job. It's actually expanding it. So now you, you're taking advantage of the fact that people are writing and you're using that to suck in all this information. And then once you do that, on any project team, you become a key player. Because all of the people on a project drive their information, their decisions, they design the interface, they define the feature set. It's all based on what the users want. So if you tap into to this knowledge of the users, you know how they tick and what they think, you suddenly become extremely valuable on a project team. You're not just the guy in the corner who's wondering when this meeting is going to end, you're the one driving the discussion. You're saying, look, this is what the customers are thinking. This is what they're saying. We, we need to add this feature. We got to change this workflow. And, and, and that can kind of launch you into design as well. I actually had a, there was one, one interface that I really found complicated in, in this latest software application. I logged five bugs against it. And, and said people didn't get it and so forth. Finally, the project manager said, why don't you redesign this screen, Tom? And I loved it. It was fun. Um, so so y y you can use this knowledge to really leverage your position. Conversation and Community is a book that Ann Gentle recently published. And um, the, actually, the next president of the STC called this the best book of the decade. I think that was a little overstated, but he really liked it, my cues. And, and I, I read it as well, and I thought um, it's right, right on target with what a lot of us need to be aware of when it comes to social media. And one of the things Ann says is that the first strategy when, when you're trying to address social media and how to enter it is to listen. A lot of people, they, they, they sign up for Twitter accounts, they may be the marketing product evangelist, and they think their job is to go out and just kind of blare their message and so forth about their product. It's really not the case with social media. With these channels, you, you have to hear what people are saying. Find the communities where they're, where they're first having the conversations, whether they're on forums, whether they're it's, uh, blogs, RSS, whatever. And then be a patient listener. Try to understand what people are saying. Begin to participate in those conversations. And then later, Maybe when you've gained their trust, then you can start kind of driving those conversations. But the first step is definitely to listen. Um, so if you're at a company, a lot of people are finally kind of jumping into the blogosphere. Uh, they, they, they've been hearing about social media for so long, they finally get to the point that it's embarrassing not to have some kind of social presence. And so they often start a blog. This is Authorit's blog. And when they were developing this, they actually asked me some questions about it at first because I, I do WordPress consulting on the side and there's a WordPress site and so forth. And I said, look, you've branded it beautifully. It looks great. You know, it fits right in with how their site looks. And I was excited to see how, how this would play out you know, because I, keep, I always preach the importance of blogs on my, my site and, and I'm excited to see companies take it as well. 
And they, they did start out pretty well. They had some interesting posts. But then I kind of forgot about them. I didn't see many, feet, many posts from them. And I was checking their site the other day, and really what their blog seems to have become is nothing more than a repository for marketing materials and PR kind of content. And this is unfortunately what a lot of companies um, do and how they perceive blogs. They, they just throw their marketing material on it. They have an announcement, put it on the blog. They, they, they're not really getting what the blog is all about. And part of the problem is they feel that anybody can write. So who's writing on the blog? Oh, uh, we have an intern. Uh, he's, what, 12? Let's have him write. <laughs> you know? this, is, this is really kind of how it sadly plays out. But if, if, you look at the, if you look at the blogs that are really powerful out there, uh, for example, Penelope Trunk, her, her blog, The Brazen Careerist, amazing blog. Uh, she is like 120% transparent on that blog. And it's, but, it, but it's really kind of, it, she's got thousands. I think she has 50,000 readers. And, and she writes about career topics, how to advance your career. But uh, reading some of her posts, it's pretty apparent that she, I think, has an MFA or some kind of writing background. She talks about her days at uh, NYU and, and her writing professors and so forth. And I think a lot of the blogs that are successful harness writing, writing talent to produce them. They're not just written by the, by the intern or, or by, they're not just marketing materials. They have, to, they have to be more. They have to be transparent and they have to be, um, you know, interesting. There's one blog that I, I think does it well. Uh, Visual Lounge by TechSmith. TechSmith is the company that makes Snagit and Camtasia Studio and Jing, all your favorite products, right? Uh, actually, I love them all. I'm not, I'm not saying that sarcastically. Um, but they've got, their focus on their blog is to highlight how users are using their tools, which is kind of cool because it takes the focus off of them and it puts it on users, but at the same time, it's also focused on their tools. So during the Super Bowl, did you see the Parisian love kind of commercial where, where um, basically it's this video of this guy searching through all these things that you see. You see him searching for flight to Paris, you know, searching for bagel shop. And finally it ends with he's like, he's falling in love and he's searching for tuxedo. And finally he's searching for how to assemble a crib. It was ingenious. Um, and there were some parodies on, on that and so forth with, with Tiger Woods and all. But, but the, the example of, of a company who is taking the focus off them, putting it on their users, highlighting how people are using their products is the right way to go. Uh, Forrester is a research company. They did all kinds of research about how, how companies can be successful in, in the blogosphere. And, and this is what they found. They found that basically you want to put the focus on your customers which goes along with the whole listening part of social media. Now, if you're, if you're listening, you're watching and observing how people are using your products, it, it's a much different sort of feel and experience as a user when you go to that site than if you just see, oh, I have an, another announcement, um, more marketing material from this company. You can't even tell if it's an individual who's writing it or if it's just like admin and so forth. Okay, so. Following this train of thought, anybody can write. Lots of people are writing, but they're not just writing in vacuums. They're sharing their writing. They're collaborating. And this is also one of the trends that, that gets us into to wikis and collaborative authoring. There's a term that you may have heard called single sourcing, which is pretty common. But it's actually somewhat dated, and it's, it's falling out of favor. There's a better term to describe how this collaborative authoring works, and that's multi-sourcing. So this is a graphic my friend Rick Sapir drew, and showing that the problem with single sourcing is that you have all the content running through one person, basically, or one source, and it's really limiting. Let's say we were all working on a project together. Well, you wouldn't want to have to send me Word documents of all your stuff so that I could put it into my help authoring tool and structure it with the tags and so forth and then disseminate it out into 17 different sources or, or targets or publications. That, that model is just, it's still the bottleneck. Um, when you have multiple people working on something, uh, you need to basically pull in their content without having to restructure it and, and push it through you. So that's, that's his, I don't, I don't, 
think it's his term or anything, but, but that was his idea that he, he likes. And um, he can take that a step further. This is, this is a, an example of a doc mashup. And this is something that Michael Hyatt in, in Utah actually presented to us. He, he's working for a startup mashup company and so forth. And we had him present. And we wanted to know how this mashup stuff he's involved in applied to tech comp. So he gave us this idea of this document mashup, which I had never even heard before. And in this, this model, the technical writer is not the person driving all the content. You're more like a guide on the side. You're the one who's gathering it up. You're arranging it. You're putting it into a, a presentation as a kind of like a portal for the user so they, they can go into these things. And, and it probably would take you out of, out of the initial site. But um, that's, that's this idea of this mashup. And if you, if you use any of Adobe's products, for example, let's say you're in InDesign and you go to the help. Well, now if you search for that help, if you search for topics in that help, a lot of times the results aren't just results within Adobe's help. They are results within people's blogs. They are results within forums. So they're kind of pulling together all this outside content. It's no longer just all driven by one author. Um, if, you, if you've seen the Google Knowles, K-N-O-L-S, like the, the content strategy knoll, it's the same sort of concept. It's not just one person who's producing this, this uh, document. It's a, a guide on the side pulling together a portal into all these documents that have been produced by other people. So this is an example of uh, another reason why Collaborative authoring is, is becoming more and more important. So my manager was recently re, doing a rewrite for a lot of the content on our, on our homepage. And um, he, didn't, he didn't really know how to approach it, right? He, there was a lot of content there. He was supposed to uh, take and change some of the tone and style and so forth. And he finally settled on a strategy. He'd, instead of trying to write this himself, he decided to go around to the different departments and asked them what they wanted written. Almost every department was really excited that they would have the opportunity to write the content themselves. Uh, my manager probably doesn't know much about family finances. Well, actually, he probably does, but about education, disability resources, pregnancy counseling, and so forth. And it's kind of ludicrous to think that one author knows all of this information and can just write cogently about it in a, in a thorough way. It's just, it's, it's too simple. So this, this idea of, of sharing and collaborating isn't just a, a cool trendy thing. It's necessary to produce the kind of useful documents that we, that we ask for. There's a problem though with collaboration. And here's actually where two trends seem to be just butting heads. On the one hand, you have social media that's exploding with You've uh, all kinds of different formats, right? You've, RSS is a pretty common format, but by and large, uh, you can't just syndicate all of your stuff across um, every single format using a universal code or a universal standard. Um, and yet, in another direction, there's this emergence of structured authoring uh, with, with um, XML standards like DITA, Darwin Information Typing Architecture that requires you to be very specific about how you tag and organize your content. You have to use specific tags around things in order to validate your documents. And once you do, then you can generate them into a few different deliverables and so forth. Um, I downplay that because I'm not a big data fan. But uh, you can do a lot with it. You can generate it into HTML, PDF, and, and, and some other formats. Well, <clears throat> it doesn't seem to fit with with content that isn't in that format. And when you're trying to collaborate with other people, you can't just ask them to structure their content in DITA. It just doesn't work. Uh, you need something simple. You need, you need something like a wiki. This is a wiki from our LDS Tech project page where we have hundreds of people from the community who come here not just to um, get information, but they also add it. My, my colleague, Paul, he was assigned to this project. He initially created some API documentation using his favorite help authoring tool, Flare. And, and 
he had it in these cool little expandable hot spots so you could drill into it. I mean, it looked really nice. But the project manager came back and said, we can't have that. We need, we need this to be in a wiki format because we want the people who are receiving it to be able to add examples and snippets and, and questions and so forth. And sure enough, after two weeks, Paul started to see the contributions that people made, uh, sample code snippets, and he totally became converted to, to this wiki model. <clears throat> this is the WordPress codex, which is my least favorite. And, and <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. This is, this is like the WordPress wiki. It's another example of a situation where if WordPress were to just hire a technical writer and have that technical writer be responsible for the documentation, it would be short. It, would be, uh, it wouldn't be comprehensive or thorough. But if you have hundreds of people all using the same system, they can all contribute so much more in a way that just kind of blows this old model out the window uh, in terms of the usefulness that it provides. The FBI actually has a wiki. Uh, I don't know if you know this. And, and they found that a lot of their employees um, would kind of hold in this information that they had for many years. And, and these people would die, and all that knowledge and information would just be trapped and gone forever. It would be trapped in that person who left. So they decided, and, and of course, they've got, they had serious accusations about lack of knowledge sharing with other things. But, but they created a, a wiki in order to try to kind of untrap that knowledge so that it increases the sharing of it. Of course, it's not like an open wiki that everybody can see, so you get like a news clipping. Part of the problems with wikis, though, is that uh, there's, there's more than 100 different wiki platforms. So it's not as if you can just tell students, hey, go learn how to write in wiki markup. Every markup is different, which is incredibly frustrating. Because part of the purpose of the wiki is to simplify authoring. It's to, make, it's to enable people, the masses, to be able to contribute. But if you don't have any kind of standard from one platform to the next, it, it can be really frustrating. So uh, this is actually from Wikimatrix. If you ever try to, if you're trying to find the right wiki, you can kind of whittle down to, to what you're actually searching for and so forth. Um, this is from Wikipedia. This is what the code actually looks like. Probably can't see it there, but little things like a, an asterisk becomes a bullet. A pound sign becomes a numbered list, and so forth. There's all kind of syntax that you have to learn. And if you get more advanced, let's say you start making tables and so forth, well, then you have pipes. And then when people who are fresh to the wiki never, have never seen markup before see it, they get intimidated. So there's, there's, this, there's this tension with wikis. You want to make them simple so that anybody can edit it. But now, on the other hand, if you make it too simple, you can't really do any kind of sophisticated formatting. If you've ever used SharePoint Wiki, SharePoint 2007, I'm incredibly frustrated by their wiki. If I'm in the middle of a numbered list and I want to have a bulleted list and then go back to the numbered list, you can't do that. So there's, there's a trade-off. On the other hand, anybody can write in that wiki. Any questions right now on anything? Yes? This is MediaWiki's, uh, this is the code behind it. Uh, this, is a, this is Missouri State University's page. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this here. This is, uh, th this is like the page as you normally see it. This is from Embarcadero. They have a giant wiki. But the cool thing about writing with wikis is not so much that you like collaborate with people, but it, see these tabs across the top? Okay, this one on discussion. This, at least with MediaWiki, this is how it works. Um, this allows people who maybe have questions about the content or they're thinking about maybe revamping a bunch of the content, but they're not sure, so they want to ask a question first, they can come to this tab, write it, and ask it. It's the coolest thing. And, and that page is visible, so that other people can, can also jump in. This just accommodates people who are hesitant to actually make the edits themselves to the, to the original content, but they want to flag a problem somehow. The history tab is also pretty cool. So you can see the different people who have worked on the wiki. And you can also compare revisions. So if somebody makes an edit that you think is terrible, you can, you can undo it. 
but you can also just see what they change. So it's a different authoring experience. It makes editing of things incredibly easy because people can just make changes. You can look at what they did and, and you can evaluate that. You don't have to try to sort through words track changes or anything like that. All right, this is the final segment of trends that I want to talk about, multimedia. So I think that uh, we have this proliferation of content out there. Lots of people are writing. You know, they're, they're not holding back on the blogs and the forums, and, and you've got lots of people in your companies writing. But still, we have this technology gap. People, they get this manual. They, they, look, at a piece of, uh, they look at a computer screen with instructions. And they're, they're shrugging their shoulders. They aren't, it's not as if technology is now really simple for everybody to get because there's so much written about it. There's so much writing available. Uh, sure, you can Google, Google things, find, find information. But by and large, I think we're missing the mark if we just tell people uh, to focus on writing. Um, there's, <laughs> there's an incredible degree of frustration that users still experience. And uh, this is something I've never entirely understood. <clears throat> Why is it that if we have something that's a visual medium, we've got a dynamic user interface, you know, you're dragging and dropping, you're, you're clicking buttons and so forth. Why is it that in order to teach people how to use that visual dynamic interface, we resort to text? Uh, why wouldn't we use a visual in mode of instruction, such as video? Um, so I was actually in line with, um, have you ever heard of WordCamp? This is a WordPress little enthusiast conference. And they had one in Utah, finally, for the first time. I was really excited to go. And I was standing in line. Something that has always bugged me about WordPress is that they don't have a technical writer on their team. They have the most like, popular open source software. Tons of people get in. They get it, they, it's over their heads when they try to like, change all kinds of things in the code. And the codex is just kind of a sad piece of documentation because it's written by developers. And I've always felt, look, if you guys want to really move forward, you need a technical writer. And I wasn't trying to like pitch myself for the job. But I was standing in there, and I was standing behind the, the founder, Matt Mullenweg, and I was kind of trying to lean towards my question in, in a nice way. And he told me that they had actually, to address this help gap, they had actually hired a screencaster or, or somebody who does video. And I was like, hmm, how's that going to work? And they, they even said they were going to tie in the video, the screencasts to be context sensitive. So I thought, ah, uh, yeah, okay, we'll see how that works. Well, later, when this guy started creating videos, they were amazing. Uh, they, I don't know where they found him, but these, these videos that he put together uh, were so engaging that on, the, on like some of these first ones, they had almost 3 million downloads um, or, or views of the video. And I think it speaks to the fact, and this is something David pointed out, so people are engaged by online formats. They, they watch a lot of things online. People are online. Uh, they're not really paper-based. Nobody's printing anything out. And um, it just makes sense to try to provide people with this visual form of instruction. So actually, I wanted to play one of these. Let's see if I can actually do that. And you can hear it, just so you can see whether you think that You'd rather read a block of text about release notes or watch a video. Uh, that's all right, because those speakers are really sad. <laughs> we'll see. I, let me jack up my, uh, or boost up my sound here, and we'll see if you can hear it. But this is, this is their 2.9 Carmen release notes. So rather than writing release notes, they have this, this video. I won't do the HD option, because who knows if we'll be able to support that bandwidth. Oh, you know what? Sorry. <laughs> Forgot. Okay. Let me actually put that on your screen. That way. Okay. Let me go back a little bit. How much more time do I have? I get till three, is that right? Or no, to five more minutes. That's right. And then you have questions. Okay. 
Okay. We go back to the beginning. Introducing WordPress 2.9 Carmen, a release focused on making publishing and managing your content more intuitive than it's ever been. In addition to some of the all-important bug squashing and heavy-duty improvements in the general media architecture, 2.9 brings several new features into play. With the importance of plugins in the world of WordPress, it made sense to make the process of checking plugin compatibility and updating your plugins as easy as possible. So now you can upgrade all of your plugins at once from the upgrade menu, and WordPress will automatically check to make sure that they're compatible with the current version that you're running. Media has also been given some attention. Images now feel more at home in the publishing process thanks to the integration of image editing. For example, you'll now find a built-in image editor welcoming you as soon as you've uploaded your picture. To edit your images later, head to your media library, choose the image you want to change, and click on the new Edit Image button. There's a crop tool, which you can also set aspect ratio for. In addition to image rotation, and horizontal and vertical image flipping. Media embeddings also undergone a major makeover. Support for the OMBET standard makes copying and pasting video URLs right into your post super simple. Now, all you need to do is paste the URL into a line of its own, and you're good to go. By default, you'll find the support for YouTube, Dailymotion, Blip TV, Flickr, Hulu, Fiddler, Quick Revision 3, Scribed, Google Video, Photobook, Paul Daddy, and WordPress TV, with more on the way. With a new trash feature, you can say goodbye to your trigger finger regrets when you delete a post, comment, or page, because now instead of delete, you'll see the word trash. Trashing a post, page, or comment moves it to your WordPress trash can, where it'll remain for the next 30 days. So if you suddenly change your mind or find that you've made a mistake, now has you covered. Just head to the new trash tab and you can restore or permanently delete your content. Of course, there's plenty of new stuff going on behind the scenes in 2.9, including automatically repairing database tables to keep things optimized for you, comment metadata, custom fields in the contact area, and a lot more features and fixes besides. Check out the codex or release post to learn more about those, the technical requirements, and a lot more. So that's WordPress 2.9. Okay, so let me get my PowerPoint back up here. So basically, would you would you rather like read a text about the release notes, or would you rather watch a video like that? And especially if you have somebody who really knows how to put that together can have an enormous appeal. Uh, and I think really that is like what a lot of students should be learning who want to teach people how to, how to use software. Um, I actually was so intrigued by this, I, I wrote to this guy, Michael Pick, and I said, how are you producing those? You know, what, are you, what tools are you even using? And it turns out he has like a background in film and he's using Final Cut Pro and like five other tools that if you add them up, you'd pretty much be bankrupt. But he, he, um, he definitely knows how to do it. You'll notice that that uh, there's a lot of eye candy. Things jump from, from scene to scene. And that gets into another principle I wanted to talk about. Um, this is just Adobe TV. They've got a site as well. But uh, we often don't have time when you're producing videos to, to incorporate all of these cinematic effects. Hollywood keeps us engaged in part because it's visually engaging. It's like, uh, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing as you're watching all these things take place. But uh, Unless you're going to sit down with, with something like, like Adobe After Effects and, and code all this in there, you're not going to have the time to do it. But if you keep things short, if you keep them under three minutes, you will still keep a sense of active engagement in your user because it gives them the power to jump around. This is from lynda.com. And, and each of these videos is pretty short. So you just go to the video you want to watch. A lot of people who, who dislike video have this idea in their heads that uh, video is, is long and tedious and you're going to have to sit there for 15 minutes and the narrator's never really going to get your question and uh, I don't have time for that kind of thing. Well, that kind of model just does not work. Um, we really have to adopt sort of a Twitter model. So one of the people who works at TechSmith who develops a lot of these things, his name is Brooks Andrus, and he, he says that 
video should be no more than 120 seconds. Of course, then he published some that were like five or seven minutes on his site. But anyway, in theory, uh, they should be short. And because people have this Twitter mindset of 140 characters, you start putting anything beyond that and your attention span just plummets. Um, next time you're watching a video, kind of look at the timer and see when you lose your attention. After three minutes, I'm doing something else. So uh, it, it is really something to keep in mind, but it also greatly simplifies the video creation process. You don't have to spend a month trying to create a video. If you sit down, practice what you're gonna do for an hour even, uh, maybe even write, write an outline or a script, and then just do it, as long as it's short, you're less likely to run into all kinds of editing nightmares that will make post-production incredibly tedious. Um, finally, one other, th so there have been some other advancements in video that make it worthwhile of, lately, of late. Um, one is the HD quality. Now if you upload things to YouTube, it's no longer this kind of fuzzy looking screen that people are trying to figure out. If you record it in 1280 by 720 dimensions, it renders it into this crystal clear HD quality, or near HD or something, uh, but, it, but it looks good. And now they're even starting to allow kind of this captions as well. So, so if you're doing SEO and you're worried about that, you, you've, you've got all this. And it's super easy to upload videos. How many, just curious, how many have uploaded a video to YouTube? Two, three, four, five? Okay, so it, it's super easy. You hit that upload button, you choose your file, and within a few minutes after uploading or, or however long it takes to render, um, it's, it's there. In fact, people are, are now, I think the next trend maybe, instead of just the idea that anybody can write, will be this idea that anybody can just speak. Every, anybody can give, give a speech or whatever. You've got this oral skill set. Um, have you seen these pocket flip cameras, right? These things that fit in your pocket. Well, we just bought a, a the competitor to that, Kodak. ZI8 for like 170 bucks, and I said, okay, well, let me see how easy this is. So I, I got in, I put it on a little tripod because my wife wouldn't help me with this. So <laughs> I put it on a little tripod, sat in a chair, gave a two-minute uh, little thought in my head about how story relates to technical documentation, uploaded it, and after YouTube finished doing its little rendering job, it was all ready. Uh, so video can be incredibly easy. It doesn't have to be this painstaking thing that. You know, requires all kinds of skill sets, um, all kinds of tedious post-production sort of uh, guru-ish sort of uh, skills. You, you, can, you can create and publish video in a much easier way. So that's all I wanted to talk to you about today. So now, uh, if you have questions, I, I would love to hear them. I would especially like to hear why is it, I mean, since I'm at an academic conference and you guys all teach your, your, your students you know, how to be good technical writers, to, to more or less, right? Why is it that video isn't emphasized as much as I think it's not being? Yeah? Uh, my guess is generation Yeah. So they're even they're past blogging. Are they past email as well? Uh, no, they don't. They don't check their emails. They if I got all my students in a Facebook group and I sent out a notice through Facebook that hey, by the way, remember to bring three copies of your paper to class, they would get it instantly. Mm. It would be like okay. <laughs> I actually was at a friend's house and uh, he he his twelve year old son. I mean, he had actually created this extensive stop motion video. And everything just to explain different video games. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to know how widespread the, the lack of video production is among, among youth. Uh, I, I mean, a lot of these kids grow up and, and uh, the camcorder size that they're used to seeing is something that fits in their hand like that really easily. Um, anyway, any other thoughts? Any other, yes, yeah? So I actually have a lot of, I do a lot of podcasts on my site. I used to do them more. 
Um, strangely, and this I never understand this, but when I pull people how they listen to podcasts, at least two thirds of them listen to it while sitting at their computer. And I think, what are you? Are you just sitting there watching your computer and doing nothing and listening to it? No, they're eating lunch or they're doing something. But um, I think podcasts can be 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, some of the most popular podcasts, Radio Lab, have you heard of this one? This American Life, these are not three minute shows. And, and they're able to go that distance a, because those ones are story-driven, and story is the most captivating kind of narrative uh, technique you could use. But B, a lot of these other podcasts that aren't so professionally produced, aren't story-driven, are, are niche podcasts that are filling a gap of information that people can't find anywhere else. So if you, if you try to find podcasts on technical writing, you find me, you find a guy over in Scotland, and you find another group that no longer does them. So there's not a whole lot, is what I'm saying. And so when you have that niche information, it could probably hold your attention more. And, and honestly, I, I listen to podcasts while I'm driving or while I'm playing basketball, like shooting around. I, I don't ever sit there at my computer because I wouldn't have the attention for that. So, so that's why it baffles me when people are you know, telling me that, oh, they listen to their computer. But, but recording podcasts is also easy. I mean, this, this little device, I'm going to just basically download this media and post it. And I think more teachers could do that as well. If you have lectures that you're giving, uh, you don't want students to miss it. Uh, when I, I used to teach, um, I would record some of them. And students would tell me they'd listen to it as they drove in. It was a commuter school, so it fit. But um, it's, it's not hard at all to, to do podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, it, I agree. Time for that, you know? Totally agree there. Yeah, Camtasia, actually, they just came out with seven, which has even more features. So it's 300 bucks for a license. You probably get a lot cheaper pr price if you're a student. But yeah, you can learn that in an afternoon or a few hours, really. Um, and if you keep the videos short, you don't have to worry about doing all kinds of eye candy. Yes? Any other questions, comments? All right, well, thanks for, thanks for listening to me.